0: Good morning. Good morning, if you are expecting to see Bryce up here, I'm, you're probably sorely disappointed, but uh, Bryce is sick, he's like many people, have, has succumbed to the flu, and so what he has asked uh, for this morning is um, for several people to share the story. Uh, a story from Scripture that, that resonates with them, that connects with them, and, and, and what that's about. So I'm going to introduce that a little bit this morning during this normal Introducing the Story uh, segment. And then um, during the, the second half of the service, there's going to be three people uh, who share um, what story connects with them and why, uh, why it's meaningful for them. That's going to be uh, Wayne the Younger, And Vera and Zula, the elder, the elder (laughs) Zula, the elder. And so, uh, so you can just let we Bryce know it takes four people to fill his shoes uh, adequately. So, and uh, somebody met one. I think it was Wayne or somebody mentioned uh, in the spirit of the day. I'm the first quarter. Wayne's the second quarter. Vera's the third quarter. And Zula, you the fourth quarter, you bring it home, buddy. So so, um, so I, um, I picked a story that's familiar. In fact, it's very familiar because um, you'll, you'll see in a minute why it's very familiar. Um, but I used, um, this is a story I used in youth ministry uh, quite a bit, quite often, and I felt it was a, a really great story to connect with most of the youth that I, that I worked with uh, during my time as youth minister here. And um, it's, it's just it's a fascinating story. And so I, I would open up uh, and, uh, with a series of questions for, uh, for the, the young people I was working with. And, here are those questions. Have you ever had someone jealous or envious of you because you were good at something and they were not? Or maybe you were be- they're better at something uh, than they were and so you felt their, their jealousy or their envy. Uh, have you ever been mistreated by a sibling or other family member? Okay, everybody, a lot of people can answer that in the affirmative. Uh, been wrongly accused of something you didn't do. Okay, and uh, that's okay. It jumped. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Let's see if it can... Okay, just go to the last slide. Or just go to... Okay, so there it kind of formatted uh, funny. Uh, Been faced with sexual temptation. Wondered why bad stuff always happened to you. Now, you can imagine in a room of of 13- uh, to 18-year-olds that most of them could uh, identify with at least one or two or all of these questions. Um, uh, so, anyhow, I used this, and we talked about these questions and, and some of the things that that uh, people deal with in their lives. Uh, and, and most of us, like I say, can identify with these. So, um, we go to the story of in Genesis 37... Go on, why don't you go ahead and just let them... All right, let's, we'll just bring them all up. We'll see if... It, okay. So this is familiar because this is a story we did last Sunday, right? And I asked Bryce, I said, Bryce, this, this is one of my favorite stories. I love this. I love the story and, and how it connects to uh, most of our lives in one way or another. And I said, is it too repetitive to talk about Joseph again? He said... It's it's your story. You doing it with it why you want. So um, I'm I'm just going to follow up and 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 uh, highlight a few things from the the story of Joseph and I, and why I think it connects so well with me and and with a lot of people and a lot of the ministry I did over over the years with youth. Um, I was thinking introducing is the story this way it connects with me because my siblings sold me to slave traders when I was a young age, but. Uh, I did feel mistreated by my older siblings, by the way. Uh, my brother, my older brother, loved to torment me um, in various ways. You can, uh, yeah, those of you that have older brothers or older siblings or are an older brother, uh, things like uh, you know, sitting, pinning me down, uh, uh, you know, sitting over me and you know, like drooling, uh, you know, and just you know, sucking it back up, or the old. Um, The chest torture, you know, thumping on my chest repeatedly for about five minutes, you know, until I was in great pain. Uh, So there was the mental part of the torture. Then there was the the physical part, too. Um, One time he uh, was on the roof of our house, and he had this long stick like a javelin, and he he threw it at me, you know, hit me in the head and put a big, you know, gash in my head blood.
1: Come down. tell mom it was an accident. You better tell mom it was an accident. (laughs) If you don't tell mom's accident, I'm going to kill you.
2: <laughs>
1: Mom, it was an accident.
2: <laughs>
0: Anyhow, so uh, Joseph is 17. In this story, as we pick up the story in, in Genesis 37, as we went through last week, Joseph is 17 years old. So he's a teenager, uh, which makes the story really great uh, working with, with young people. He's 17 years old, he lives in a blended family. Most of the teens I worked with lived in some sort of, either a single parent or a blended family, and there was, there was usually uh, some sort of dysfunction, right? And there's, as in most families, there's some, some level of dysfunction in, in his family. Uh, not only that, I mean, you think about uh, the whole thing with, you know, four, there's four women, and each woman has their children, and as we talked about last week, he's the favorite, but his mother dies, Giving birth to his little brother Benjamin, and so he's now uh, uh, without his mother, and he has this relationship with his brothers. That's pretty, you know, it's pretty rocky, as we talked about. Uh, his brothers hate him, by the way. you know, the whole robe, the, the, the fancy robe that his father made for him. And Eddie's and, and just he's in a bad spot. Uh, he has strange dreams. he has these visions of grandeur, you know that people don 't appreciate and as we talked about last week his brother his brothers sell him for uh, twenty shekels of silver and so um, when you think about joseph 's life at age seventeen uh, it 's pretty cruddy when you when you think about, it. even though he 's kind of got this sense that that his life is has purpose and is special i mean it's, it's not a great environment to be in. Uh, to be, uh, and then finally, you know, to be sold uh, to slave traders. And so when you, when you think about, you know, that the challenges that, that he has and all the reasons for maybe either giving up, losing his faith, um, not staying faithful, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons and a lot of excuses that that we often make when things go wrong in our lives and I don't know if you've ever done this but I times in my life frequently where you you kind of play this game with God and you say God if you'll just if you'll just kind of make this thing right then I'll do X for you or I'll uh, you know I'll, I'll, I'll get my life in order or I'll do, you know just you know, if you'll take care of this thing and And what's what's impressive to me about Joseph is he he doesn't appear to play that game. He simply goes about um, living with integrity, with trust and faith in God, and just does the right thing over and over and over and over again. He does the right thing. And what's interesting to me is uh, what we don't learn learn in Genesis 37. We learn in Genesis 39 that uh, Scripture tells us that Joseph was handsome and well built. Okay, so that means he's tall, dark, and handsome, right? He's 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 Hebrew, so he's dark, and he's and he's he's this young, good-looking, strapping guy, and course as we talked about in the story last week with Potiphar's wife maybe you know he she's she notices that too, and so you know she wants to have relationships with him and and he and over and over and over she just she's badgering him i mean day in and day out come on, come on, Joseph, get with the program here and he consistently says no it's that's not the right thing to do and imagine a young man of of seventeen who's good looking and and has you know, has been put in, now in a, good, in a good situation to be able to stand up and say, no, it's not the right thing. It would be displeasing to God for me to do that. Um, just really, uh, that just strikes me as, as just a great example of, of a young person with character, with integrity, uh, with love for God, and um, just trust that God, whatever situation he's in, God is going to take care of it. Um, and, and, as we talked about last week, of course, you know, scripture says that, that God was with him, and where, wherever he went, even though these bad things happened, uh, that God made him prosper mm-hmm. and so you know that 's why the story of, of Joseph uh, resonates with me, why uh, I find it so fascinating, and why I think I find it very relevant for today, uh, because just about all of us uh, face tough life situations, and the call to our lives to simply be faithful, to act with integrity, and to do the right thing, because that's what God wants us to do. So, bless you, and I'm looking, we're looking forward to the other three uh, that share in the second half. So,
1: All right, well, this morning, I uh, do have that opportunity here to share uh, a story uh, favorite Bible story. And so this morning we'll be talking about, I know you're going to be shocked by this, David and Goliath. It's not a height thing, really. Uh, and in fact, uh, my approach to uh, so the story is a little different even from looking at it uh, uh, from David's point of view, which is how we usually look at this story, by the way. You know, we look at it, David and his his battle against this, you know, big, scary, powerful foe and, the, you know, the courage he had to have, the faith he had to have. I want to look at it a little differently. So our story comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have a a phone you want to use to follow along, I'll I'll pretend that you're not playing a game. If you uh, have a tablet or if you even use one of these archaic old things called books, we have them in the pew racks in front of you. It's pew racks. Talk about archaic. In the seats in front of you there, we have some Bibles. So if you want to, I'll mention it again. 1 Samuel 17. Uh, And you could, since it's only one chapter, you could read it faster and I can tell the story, but uh, we'll go through it here. So yeah, so so I like to look at the story not so much as being about David, but about military strategy in the era, as well as about the individual soldier's view. It's a little different perspective, like I say. And the reason why I like to look at this way is because there's a lot of information in this story, little small bits that tell us something about warfare in that period. Because things happen that if you're just reading along and you're only focused on David and Goliath, you'll miss them. But they tell us a lot. For example, one of the things we know is that, as we, uh, as we read through particularly, say, the book of Judges, we know that when a, a threat comes against Israel, when there's an invasion, we know how Israel responds, Right? Uh, A judge is called up, they they levy the people, and they get together a force of people, and they go out and they fight the bad guys, and God gives them victory. Kind of simple. But what that tells us is that they don't have a professional army. Right? They don't have guys whose job it is to be soldiers. They don't have that basis around which their volunteers are levied. It also tells us that they probably, we, we can say with actually with great confidence, the type of units they would be would be what's called light infantry, meaning they would have minimal armor, perhaps a leather or bronze helmet. They they might have possibly uh, a, a light breastplate, perhaps a scale leather, maybe even you know metal scale. It's possible a spear. A shield, a sling, and probably an iron sword. That's how they would be armed. That's how light infantry of the day was armed. The Philistines, on the other hand, had a different kind of army. The Philistines, being probably originally a sea people, the, uh, the Philistines had a number of weapons that were not available to the Israelites. They had, if we look at the description of Goliath's armor, it describes a heavy infantry phalanx fighter. He has a bronze metal breastplate. He he is essentially the equivalent of the tank on the battlefield. The phalanx had spears coming out from this group of men, and they, they were slow to move, but they were steady and they could mow down the enemy forces. Particularly light infantry couldn't stand against them in a head-to-head battle. But in order to make that work, you either had to be regularly drilling your troops, which usually meant you had to have a professional army, at least a professional corps, if you will. We also know that they had the ultimate weapon on the battlefield of that era available to them. This was space-age technology, in that era. They had chariots. Chariots referred to as iron chariots, by the way, sometimes. The idea being either that they had um, iron blades coming out from the chariot, or it could be more a poetic term to talk about how powerful and strong they were, nearly unbreakable, the iron chariots. And they used them to move about the plains in a plains battle. You'd be able to move your troops very quickly to a spot and use them to fire arrows. Or as shock troops to quickly rush forward. And if you think about it from the individual soldier's view, here you are. They gave you a bronze helmet to wear. That's kind of nice. You got some armor now. And you got a sword and a shield. And now a chariot is rushing at you, metal blades sticking out from the sides. Three men on this chariot. One driving, one throwing a spear, another firing arrows. Do you think you want to stand there and wait for that to get to you? No. Because you see, battles in this era are often decided by morale more than technology. But the catch is that technology can break morale. So what happens in this case is Saul has, has done some work against the Philistines. He has attacked them. He's driven them out of a few locations. The Philistines have even gone so far as to ban the Israelites from working metal. They're not even allowed to forge metal. Because what can you do with metal? Make weapons. So things have been bad. Finally, Saul has started to raise a force to battle against them. And so... The Philistines respond by bringing a significant military force into Israel. The problem for them is, though, that Saul, being a fairly smart guy, he is, if nothing else, he's a cagey veteran in war. So he doesn't go to fight them on a nice, even plain. He waits for them to come into the rocky, hilly regions of Judea to fight them there. Which means, how useful would you speculate that uh, chariots would be in that kind of environment? Completely negates it, right? In fact, they become more a liability than a strength in that terrain. Add to it the heavy infantry, the phalanx, is useful when you have a single direction you can push it. But if you have light infantry able to move around the flanks and come down upon them, they now have the advantage. And so, despite the fact that the Philistines have, have this core professional army, in order to not just be overwhelmed by light infantry, they also have to levy troops. And they have quite probably as many as 20,000 men involved in this invasion. Some sources actually indicate maybe as many as 30, but it's difficult to say with with ancient counting systems. So with these, they've come in, and finally, they finally get to Saul. But Saul has looked at his forces, and he looks at the invading forces, and he, he, being a smart guy, he doesn't go to fight them. He climbs up onto a hill... Because when you're on a hill fighting downwards, now the heavily armored phalanx has to move up through broken terrain to try to fight you. By the time they get you, their cohesion is broken up. And now your light infantry has the advantage, and you're fighting downhill. It's a lot easier to throw rocks downhill than uphill. Well, the Philistine general was also no idiot. Seeing the situation, he goes over and he takes another hillside. So now you've got the two of them staring across the hillside at one another, waiting for each other to make the move. Now, there's some good news in here for Saul because you've got the invading force who's not in their home terrain. They don't have an easy way to resupply. And he does have some ability to resupply. On the other hand, Saul also has a problem in that his troops are all levied. They've got farms and pastures to go back to. And the problem is that after more than 40 days, we know it's longer than 40 days of staring at one another across these hills, what do you think is probably happening to the size of these two armies? Yeah, they're very slowly diminishing. As suddenly people go, well, you know what, guys? Good luck to you, but i got to head back home and get to the farm. I spent my time. I, I gave three weeks to this, and it's not over. So things are starting to get rough. Meanwhile, the Philistines use psychological warfare. They send out a very, very experienced powerful, giant of a man called Goliath. Said he's well over seven foot high, depending on how you take the measure. Some measures even get him up to nine feet, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about it is, when he comes out, we often think, of okay, he's walking out there, and he's walking out into the middle of a field, and he's saying, hey, come on, let's fight. He's not walking out there alone. No, no. He has just back behind him, he's got his men. Because the problem is, if he just walks out in the middle and shouts, rocks fall, he dies. So he has to have his shieldmen out, prepared, so he can move back behind if there's a sudden attack. And so you got this situation. What he's wanting to do is inspire, if you will, the Israelite forces to rush forward, to take him out. Because when they do, he falls back to his trained men, their light infantry moves forward, and suddenly they get what they want, which is a pitched battle on the flat ground. That's what they're looking for. But Saul refuses to give it to him. And it starts to wear on morale. In fact, if it weren't for this, Saul's strategy would have probably simply worked. Eventually, the Philistine army would have to give up and go home. But because of Goliath's work, now people are afraid. And when you're afraid, when you realize that you don't have anyone, even your king, who is a great warrior, who is said to stand a full head above everyone else in height in your area, even he isn't going out to fight Goliath. What are we doing here? We're just going to lose. And the problem is when you have this thinking and it comes to suddenly someone standing in front of you wielding a sword or a spear, suddenly you start thinking about home again. And before you know it, you're running, the guy next to you is running, and the whole army routes. Very easy. So things are going poorly for Saul. Goliath has been wearing down the morale. And so Saul has an opportunity come to him. A young shepherd comes and says, Hey, I'll fight this guy. Saul's been around the block. He knows what it means to fight. He knows what kind of a trained warrior Goliath is. I don't know about you, but I really suspect that he looked over at David and said, this is not going to work. But being a clever guy, knowing something about morale, he also knows about a concept that, you know, was still in practice up through, even through the Napoleonics era and even into our own Civil War era, something called an honor charge. An honor charge is essentially when someone has been disgraced and they want to win their honor back. They, grab the, they take a flag, and at the beginning of a battle, they rush forward by themselves. In modern warfare, it means, you know, shots firing and other such. And their goal is to plant the flag at the enemy's line, knowing they're going to die, but thus restore their honor to prove that they were courageous. And then, on the other side all of the sergeants up and down the line scream out, we can't let this happen. Look what they've done. He had the guts to fight. He had the guts to die. What about you? And he used it to fire up the troops. And I think something very similar is happening here. Because Saul starts out by dressing David in whose armor? His own armor. Now, you don't have to be a tailor to know it's not going to fit David. David. So why is he dressing David in his armor? What is Saul's reason for doing that? For honor? Maybe to create an even more sympathetic situation. Now, is that Saul going out to fight? What? Oh no, Saul has been struck down. Suddenly Saul stands up on the line and says, No, we've got to get them now. And you know the emotions turn over. They can't, can't stand by while this good-looking youth is slaughtered by a heathen monster. And so, in this story, David declines the armor and goes out just in his shepherd's clothing creating the most sympathetic figure possible for the slaughter. Making you think of the sacrificial lamb, perhaps, as he goes out And yet, God looks at this situation and says, Yeah, you got a plan there, Saul. Not so sure it's really going to work out for you. And God, knowing the hearts of the individual soldiers, knowing the struggle they're having with faith and believing even in their ability to win this fight, God blesses David to strike down Goliath turning the tide on the morale issue and now whose morale is being crushed the Philistines they've seen a, a shepherd boy kill their most powerful greatest intimidating warrior and now suddenly you've got this light infantry coming down out of the hills rushing towards them what do they do they break they flee and are pursued and routed. And in this story, I think that that God can take a bad and even a desperate plan. Maybe you've had one of those in your life, I don't know. But He can take those, and He can turn them around and bring us victory through those. And when this happens, we know it's not by might nor by power, but by thy Spirit. We know. It's God who brings the victory. God who delivers us. And God, through this, is also setting the stage to bring about His kind of king, a man after His own heart. So God not only brings victory in the moment, but He is setting the stage to bring a greater victory for all of the people. I think that in this, we see that God often saves us from our own folly. I think this is also a story where the shorter guy wins, so maybe that made me like it more. (laughs) But anyway, I find it encouraging and fun, and I hope you have been blessed by this.
2: the boys told me that I am the third quarter. Can you hear me, Mike? Michael, can you hear me? Good. <laughs> if my husband can hear me, I'm good. <laughs> You're not my husband. <laughs> Okay, let me tell you, um, when you're asked to share your faith, when I was asked to share my favorite Bible story, I thought, oh, great. Then I started thinking about it and going, well, I like that one, and I like that one, and I know I learned from that one, and so I put three down and I said, okay, Lord, which one, and prayed about it, and he gave me this one. And it is regarding the resurrection of Jesus and the women at the tomb. And it's found in Matthew twenty eight, one through fifteen, Luke twenty-four, one through twelve, John 20:1 through nine, and John twenty ten through eighteen. Okay, there were about six women named, plus many unnamed at the tomb. Jesus was buried and certainly at the cross these women were Jesus's female disciples they went to the tomb where Jesus was buried only to find it empty I'm reading because let me tell you looking all at your faces and just talking like Wayne just did is not in my nature (coughs) they were the first eyewitnesses testifying to the risen Christ This fact alone, being the eyewitnesses, was unacceptable by the Jewish Talmud. Yet Jesus allowed his female disciples to encounter him before his male disciples and even sent the women to tell the male disciples he had risen from the dead. These facts thrill my heart. Why? Not because I'm a woman. Why? It's because the death and resurrection of Jesus reverse the effects of the fall. Genesis 3 describes pain, slavery to sin, and alienation from God's presence. John 20 reveals healing, deliverance, and full restoration of fellowship with the Son of God. Hallelujah. These women were reminders that the kingdom Jesus represented was unlike their world. By valuing their witness, Jesus gave full dignity to women. I learned to love this story because it tells me about godly women, followers of Christ like me and my sisters here at Sonoma Avenue in Santa Rosa and all around the world. We are believers and followers of Christ. The women that went to the tomb that amazing morning were doing what needed to be done, gathering the spices to tend to the dead body of Jesus. What they were doing, they would have done for any family member, according to Jewish tradition. Nicodemus had brought a huge amount of embalming spices for Jesus' burial but that women desire to use more spices either as additional honor and respect or out of necessity in order to finalize the process of burial. I cannot help but think that when we are burying one of our loved ones that we may find a special outfit to dress them in or choose a special casket or a special urn to place their remains in so it's like a final way of honoring and saying goodbye to our dead. that's what women do one of the things that women do Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene and she was the one who Jesus took seven demons out of so she was a very grateful woman She spoke to angels at the tomb through her tears, telling them someone had taken her Lord, and she didn't know where he was. Then through tears, she spoke to a man she thought was the gardener, asking him if he had taken Jesus away. It was Jesus, not the gardener, who called her name. Can you imagine hearing your name? I can't imagine Mary just hearing your name, recognizing his voice. Mary. And she turned to him and cried out, Teacher. Jesus told her to find his brothers, the male disciples, and tell them. So Mary told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message from Jesus. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This is not about women, this is about God's very good creation, men and women, and how Jesus used us and included us in his story. The six women at the tomb were Joanna, who was a steward of King Herod Antipas, which I thought was very interesting. Um, that she worked for King Herod and she helped Jesus financially among other women Mary Magdalene who Jesus delivered from seven demons and she was the first person to see Jesus alive and who told the other disciples Mary, the mother of Jesus Mary, the mother of James and Joseph Mary, a lot of Marys, huh? Mary, wife of Clophas uh, Clophis was the brother of Joseph of Nazareth, and their son Simeon, who was Jesus' cousin, became a leader of the Jerusalem church, succeeding James, the brother of Jesus. And Salome, mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, I think. We could add Trollis' name, Michelle's name, Lydia's name, Laurie's name. George's name. Marianne's name. Leslie's name, Jerry's name. Secret's name. Renee's name. Tell me. Help me. I just lost your name, honey. Daphne. <laughs> Donna, Karen. Sean and Jenna. And Edith, Maria, and I don't remember your daughter's name I'm renaming these people because um, Sherry and her daughter Isabella. <laughs> Bonnie.) <laughs> help me, help me, help me. Share um, Christy and our sweet, sweet, sweet Vivian and Stephanie and Judy and Cheryl, and Linda, and Kathy, and Crystal, and Sophie, and Suzanne, and Susie, and Kathy, and Mindy. We can add all of those names to the women at the tomb, because we go there every single time we take communion, We go there every single time, not just women, we all do it, but I'm talking about the women at the tomb, and this is what comes up in my heart when I am looking at um, what's going on at the tomb. Okay, so this is my favorite story, and the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the women disciples who followed him, and the men disciples who followed him, and I think it's the story about how the men and the women began working together for God's glory. Some of you ladies have received and exchanged texts or emails with me on Resurrection Sunday or before Resurrection Sunday. These words are, he is risen, the tomb is empty, he is alive. Now, I think that's a great story. And aren't these words thrilling words to share about our Lord?
3: Do we want do you to want to go or do we have you want to, you want to oh, mm. here? Okay. He right. wants to go. All right, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy everybody did at watch on now. Right? right, let's go, man. We got the story. All right, we got you. <laughs> All right. So, uh, mine was Job, and I didn't tell anybody else that until this morning. So they were kind of excited about that. All right. Um, Job is a long one. It's 42 chapters. A lot goes on. I don't think there's another book with this much dialogue in it. It's just a lot of talking back and forth. You can see him in front of the fireplace just talking and talking and talking. But it's a, a lot of lessons for me when I was early on and even now, obviously, but understanding the type of questions that are raised up in this. So we'll start it off. I'll give a quick background, and then we'll get into the life lesson that we always wait for. All right. So, in a land far away called Uz, anybody else pronounce it differently? I go with Uz. And the thing about Job, <clears throat> it's not connected really to anything. He doesn't know Abraham. He's not really connected to David and Goliath. He's not connected to anything that's going on as far as, like, Israel is. And we're like, well, just another one of those things where it's just kind of put in there. And it's a long one, too. It's not like a couple of chapters. It's, it's a big deal. They don't know really who wrote it. They think... <clears throat> Maybe one of the guys' name is Elihu. They think maybe he could have written part of it. Moses could have written part of it. But they're not sure. But the point is, uh, it's not connected, but it's a a deep story that goes on in there. So it starts off by describing who Job is. A very wealthy guy. And back then, your wealth is counted by how many cows you have. And how many sheep and camel and donkeys. And the word that I have in in my Bible says he had many servants. So I don't know however many that is, but it's a lot. Right? So... (laughs) He's he's well off. We don't know how he got his money or all that outside of God blessing him. So <clears throat> he has all this stuff, and then you transport into this weird scene that goes on, and it said, and you kind it's like a not maybe a courtroom but a throne room. There you go. I, can't hear you. I, I thought I was loud enough. Okay, I got you. Here. So you're 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 pulled into this like this courtroom kind of a place, and it says that God calls all the sons of God in front of Him, which means all the angels around the world have to come in front of Him. And one of them being Satan. Now, Satan means the accuser. So that's his, uh, the the Satan, the Satan, as they call him. So he's the accuser, the prosecutor. He's always pointing the finger at somebody and saying, you are trash. You were not worth it. Look at all the nonsense that you ever done. Two times this happens. The first time he comes in front of him and God says, where have you been? Obviously rhetorical, he knows where he's been, right? He says, I've been up and down, you know, around the earth looking at things. And he says, well, have you considered my friend, uh, my servant Job? I remember when I read that, I was like, well, what does that come from? Why are you talking about Joe? He just says he was running around the earth. He didn't say he was looking for people, but that's what's implied, apparently. And he does this twice. And he says, and then basically what the devil says is that the only reason he cares about you, man, is because you give him stuff. Okay? If you didn't give him all these things, if he didn't have all these kids and the wife and the, the, the animals, he wouldn't care about you. I think that for myself. Do I love God for the things he gives me? Well, for who he is, right? We'll talk about that a little bit later on. So, for some reason, God decides to go on on this, like, quasi-wager with him. I can't call it a wager because he doesn't get anything if he wins, but something's going on. And he says, okay, you can take his stuff, but don't harm him. And you're reading this, and you're like, whoa, 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 why would you do that? What's? Why are you letting him do this? A, you know, that he, the devil still has to ask permission from God, or not permission, but... God will and will not allow certain things to happen. Which is like, when you're first learning about God and all this thing, this is like all trippy stuff to you. Like, why is he even around him? Why does he even get to be out there in front of God? His guy didn't get cast out. Why are you back here? So you start to see all this going on. Bunch of bad stuff happens. Makes you real sad. Unless I sit down and read it, it still bothers me. But he loses the animals. His kids lose their houses. It says, like... After they would party, Job would wake up and pray for the stuff they might have done. That's, he was a good dude. He, did, he tried to be blameless in every way, and God lets this happen to him. Never mind all those criminals and bad people. This guy was supposed to be a good person, and God is letting this happen to him. So You're questioning God's character. It says This thing is coming back into, into play here. The whole thing from Genesis about, did God really want you to do this kind of stuff? Job flips out. All this stuff is going on, but he doesn't curse God, which is what the devil said he would do. If you do all, you take the stuff away from him, he's going to curse. He doesn't really care about you; He just cares about thing to give him. He says, okay. So it happens again. God calls everybody back in front of him. He got the throne room or whatever, and all the angels come. <laughs> Apparently the devil's the loudest one, because nobody else has much to say except for this guy, right? They bring it up again. And he goes, okay. But you've given him health and all that. And God says, all right, you can mess with him, like, physically. Paraphrasing, I don't think God uses the word mess with him, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and he says, but you cannot take his life. you got to spare him. So then he gets these boils and all that, and you guys have seen them. Anybody in the medical world, it's, it's nasty stuff. And they didn't have anesthetics and all that back then, so this guy's just dealing with it. And his wife is like, why don't you just curse God and die? shes I mean, she's going through it too, which we really don't hear about. Her kids... Her property, it's all hers too. So she's going through it, but we don't really get it from her side. And he's like, no, I can't do that. Why would I thank God in the good times and not thank him in the bad times? Well, it's easy for me to have my hand out when he's giving me. So he's still trying to do the right thing. For the next 30 chapters-ish, his three friends come to hang out with him. I never remember their names. Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth not really the most Hebrew names. They're they're just guys from out there. And these are the questions that arise, and this is why it matters to all of us, this story. When you're going through suffering, right? bad stuff is happening, why is God letting stuff go on? And his friends come with the common responses that you hear. Christians and non-Christians alike. At first, either God is not that just, because he's just letting all these things go on, but that's not the stance that his friends take. His friends are like, look, we get it. You're going through all this. You must have done something. I mean, like, what are you not telling us, basically, is what's going on. And they come to hang out with him. They're trying to be his friends. And you guys have probably experienced it. When you just need somebody to just kind of sit there and be with you, but they keep talking in any way. It's like, I don't need all the extra advice. You know, I just need you to just chill out and let me kind of go through this. But Eliphaz talks goes on his whole thing. He says, if God is just and that's what he is, this is what has to happen and this is how it goes on, you must have done something. He's like, I have it, man. I don't do that. That's not what I did. I didn't do anything. I don't know what is the problem here. But he's okay with it. hes I mean, not okay, but he's taking it. He's doing it. His second friend does the same thing. And they carry on for a few chapters. And the third friend comes and they carry on for a few chapters. And finally, you know what? He's like, you know, I don't know. And then he asked God himself. He said, why are you doing this? He's upset with him. You guys ever had times when you've been mad with God? Old tradition will tell us, you don't, don't yell at God. Don't talk to him. Job has about had it. He hasn't cursed him and all that yet, but he's in the ashes, the sackcloth. His kids have died. He's lost his property. It's all bad for him right now. And he finally says, what, what is it? What do you want? I, I don't know what I did three questions he raises up throughout all of this and there's a lot more obviously we can't get into but the foreshadowing factor is who can bring pure out of unpure who can, what happens to man when he lays down, who's going you know, to what, what, what's the end of him and the third one, who can bring anything back to life once it's gone you see all that that's coming later on but he doesn't understand it and he goes on and on he starts questioning God and why is he? he starts questioning his character now and then you get into chapter thirty eight. And this is I love these words, and then Who is it that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? God answers him. Here he is. You've been talking about him this whole time, and I'm just a m I am just I wanted somebody to do the movie version of this with the clouds shaking and then the lights pop out and then you hear the voice finally that says, Alright, are you done carrying on as much as you have for this long? Remember, this is a good dude, not some guy who just blasphemes all. This is a good guy. And God tends to carry on about a lot of stuff. All the way from, did you put the stars where they are? Do you make the times carry on how they are? Did you do you tell the water how far to go? Do you know about the uh, the mountain goats <laughs> daily eating habits? Do you know when the the deer are supposed to have their kids? Do you know a- any of this that goes on? Any any and he just gets at him over and over and over and over again, and he finally says, answer me, because he doesn't have the answers for all this. He expects, his friends expect, well, if God is just, this is how it is, there's no in-between. But we do this a lot. We take God's character, and we act like we know what he's going to do. Now, we're in a better position because we have the New Testament, we have the crucifixion, we have the resurrection. So we know that God loves us. What it can't be is because he doesn't love us when bad things happen to us. Good people or bad people. When something's going on, you can't say, well, God doesn't love me. He's proven that he does. So logically speaking, I can't use that excuse because he's given himself for me. He came to earth when he didn't have to, and my eternity is safe with him now. So it makes it a little more complicated now because now I don't have my easy answer. Well, if he does love me, then I still don't understand. The book of Job never answers it, by the way. If you guys were looking for the happy ending, there's no, it doesn't tell you, this is why I do what I do, so you guys can get in on my my planning process. It doesn't happen. But eventually, Job understands, okay, I cannot see it from your angle. There's all this that's going on. And a lot of times, non-Christians, our friends, they say, well, if God is all-powerful, all-loving, da-da-da-da-da-da, why does he let this happen? As if by some crazy chance that God might have a reason that we don't understand. Because again, when you're looking at, let's say this whole thing is a picture, and all you see is the little bottom corner, how can you possibly make any decision on that? How can you come to any conclusion on what's going on? Now, if we don't know God's character, that makes it that much harder. Hence why we have tons of stories about God's character, about getting to know him. And on top of that, we have prayer, we have fellowship, we have each other to know this is what God does in our lives. This is who he is. To so the little bit that he allows us to know him. At the end, God's not mad at Job for questioning him and getting mad at him. We may think sometimes if we get mad at God that he can't handle it. Like he's super sensitive. He's not. He cares. He's sensitive in the way that he loves us. But he's not worried if I flip out one day and I'm cursing. I don't know what to do because he knows I'm finite. Like, and he blesses Job again. He gets everything back that he had. Plus more, actually. He doubles it. His friends, however, God says something to them. We, you guys get to read it on your own when it happens. But he's basically telling them, you guys don't know who I was and why were you running your mouths acting like you know who I am? Something similar to that. It says like, woe of you who want to be teachers. It's like I'm very careful when I go around talking about God like I know something. Certain things we do, but... They weren't humble in their ways. Like, you must have screwed up. God must have, something's going on. And he gets on them more than he gets on Job. Job is, I won't say rewarded for hanging through there, but God is, is gracious and he gives him that. And he says, the lesson that you get is it's okay to be upset. Things happen. This world is dirty. Last year alone, all the nonsense. Every day there's something's going on that we can't possibly see. That's always happening out there. It was a big jump in my maturity when I read this. Because that's how my mind is. It's like, well, something's bad. Something goes on, I must have done something. God's not out here just mad at me about things. I I must have screwed up in some way. I don't think about the lessons he wants me to learn. I don't think about the, 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 the character he's building through me. I don't think about all these things. All I know is my life was going this way. Now it's not. Who's to blame for all this? So...